0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am delighted to have my friend and former client, Alex Mosco, CEO of 9mm PR, as my guest. Today, we're going to talk about something fluffy and tree huggy storytelling. Alex.
1: Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to see you.
0: Excellent. Can you give the audience 60 seconds on your background? Before we go into why storytelling is a hard skill, not a soft skill.
1: Sure. It would be my pleasure. So I've been in public relations, corporate communications for nearly uh, two decades now. I was always the guy that was partnered up with the CEOs of my clients' businesses. Uh, I was working with uh, very, very large technology businesses. And my job was to raise their media profile. And I do that by auditing their brains, right So understanding what it is that they knew that we could package up into content and and uh, communicate through the media and, and was very successful at doing that. and but I realized that no matter how big a company you are, if you've been doing something for a while and you're passionate about it, you typically have very valuable information that you can use to, to, uh, to ge- generate media coverage, but more importantly, to connect you to your audience, to engage and influence. And so my job these days is really mining the gold within businesses, which means helping people to understand the value of their experience and expertise and use that to engage and attract with their their market.
0: Okay, so let's kick off with the whole concept of story. What is it and what isn't it, first of all? Uh, So it's
1: it's a good question. Well, let's first of all talk about, I think the concept of story can be quite a challenging one because I think I liked your introduction because you're talking about fluffy tree hugger stuff. And it can feel a bit fluffy, especially in a sales environment. You know, we want to get to hard facts, we want to get to ROI, which is you know something we were talking about earlier. But actually, you know, story is very, very powerful because there's two really important things that a company needs to do. One is they need to be attractive, and we are attracted to the things that we see ourselves in. And story, and story is very good at doing that. The other thing that story is really good at is proof, right? That's basically what, what story is. It's telling somebody a story that they can see themselves in and they can see the outcome that they're going to get. And it's a case of being able to show somebody what's in store for them rather than telling them. And, and, and so whereas some people might think story is fluffy because it's the kind of stuff you tell kids, actually... Stories have the power to persuade. What is it? So, story is essentially being able to communicate the value of what you offer in a way that people will be able to see that value and understand it.
0: I think it goes beyond that, though, because it's important that it creates a personal, emotional connection. And one of the things that really pisses me off is case studies. Um, Because case studies are these dry, tedious pieces of prose that create no emotional connection. They're all about me, 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 me as a company. And they fail to convey the journey, the struggle. They fail to describe the before and after process. And uh, unless you do that, no one really gives a damn about the ROI. Yeah, the CFO might look at that if you haven't done a good enough job of uh, getting them involved. And if they don't see it immediately, it's pretty much dead in the water. But the the reality is that you need to take people through an emotional journey. Mm -hmm. And um, sales is about the transfer of emotion uh, as much as it is, because I don't really believe that you can convince or persuade anyone of anything. They have to persuade and convince themselves. And that's the real potency that lies behind story. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I would
1: 100 percent agree with that. I think the big question
0: is always who owns the story,
1: right? So the feeling, especially when you come to case study, that it's the let's say the suppliers, the the sellers' uh, story, because you know they were the ones that did the work Uh, and so they're the ones that should take center stage and and it's a really good opportunity for us to celebrate and communicate all our brilliance and how amazing we are but actually that's not the case and that's exactly what you were talking about there a good story is one in which the reader or viewer can see themselves in. And that's where the emotion connection comes to, because they actually connect with the hero of the story. And so the hero needs to be the buyer, because they're the one that went on the journey. And you're the one that that took them on that journey. I mean, you and I have always, I've got the karate kid as kind of my analogy, and you've got Star Wars with Yoda. But, you know, If you think about the Karate Kid, the story is Daniel's story. Daniel's the guy that we uh, relate to. It's his emotions that we connect with. And it's the outcome of, you know, he starts off this bullied kid who's beaten up and has a terrible time in this new town. And through the the Karate Kid, he kind of grows and he, you know, meets Miyagi and he becomes this karate genius. And by the end of it, he's got everything, right? He's won the competition. He's got the girl. He's got the respect of everybody.
0: And now, if you say, if you've endured Cobra Kai, he's got a chain of car dealerships. So he is a slimy little twat who ended up as a car
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Cobra Kai is wonderful because it yeah. really turns the tables on the whole thing. <laughs> and it's funny you find yourself really relating to the other chap who's had, you know, we all love an underdog story anyway. We love uh, stories, or, uh, uh, you know, success against adversity. And that's what a case study Redemption. is. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, let's think about most journeys we take our clients on. You know, these people are struggling, and that's why they come to us. As you always said, people don't wake up in the first thing in the morning and go, you know what, I need today. I must buy myself some PR or some uh, sales consultancy, you know. Router.
0: Ever since I was a child, I wanted a router. A router.
1: I'm going to update my PR today. You know, my PR is five years old. They don't do that. What they say is shit we've got a problem and we need to solve it, who do we know that can solve it for us? Or where are we going to find the people that can solve it for us? And, and that's why case studies are so powerful, because it, it, if they're done properly, what they do is they tell the story of somebody going from the shit to, a, to success. right? And we talked about this just before we came on, which is most, so most case studies are rubbish because they don't set up the context. They, you know, so we don't have any idea of the problems that the client was facing prior to engaging with us. And the other big problem that case studies have is that they end too soon right they end with the the result the roi right so or or you know as a pr company we might have generated 50 pieces of coverage in national press and that that would be the end of the story but of course that's not the end of the story the end of the story is the impact right so what did the result mean to the company to the person what was their life like following our work together both professionally and personally what what was the positive effects or affects that, that that mean that they you know they got what they wanted whether you know it might be a pay rise it might be a promotion it might be they went on, the company went on to achieve incredible heights that they you know something they've always wanted might went on to help lots of people because suddenly people understood what what it is that they were offering. So that impact is going to be absolutely essential. So I th- I think Case studies are dry and crap because they typically are very technical papers that try to sell. Whereas actually, what they should be is redemption stories or the hero story, as we like to say, of somebody going from adversity to uh, success.
0: Well, I' I'm a huge fan of Simon Bowen of Models Method, and he talks about finding the genius in your business, and he's got five critical questions. Which, unless you're capable of answering them, you're going to struggle to tell your story in a compelling way. So do you understand the deepest impact your product or your service has on your customers? At a level of insight that even your customers find difficult, do you really understand how to get to that visceral impact? Then can you confidently articulate the three most important tangible outcomes? Because again, I've come from the last seventeen years of telling the, um, you know, driving home the message: pain, pain, pain equals pound, pound, pound. And yes, people do want to move away from pain, but people buy a better future. They buy the outcome. In fact, they rent the outcome for as long as it continues to deliver that result. And then, can everyone who faces customers in your business show anybody? Whether it's a customer, a prospect, a partner, exactly how your business delivers those outcomes to them quickly within five to seven minutes. Because if you can't, you'll lose them. And do you have a crystal clear understanding of the number one reason why customers choose not to go ahead with your product or service? And do you have a visible and tangible way to reverse the risk for your customers on this number one? reason why people don't go ahead, because if you can't do that, and your stories don't tell that story, don't convey that message, then you're just going to be lost in a sea of noise. So again, your thoughts. So
1: I've not heard of Simon, but I I would 100% agree with everything that he is saying there. And and my thoughts on this are are this. The problem with case study and a lot of storytelling is that it never involves the client. We'll go away and someone say, Right, you've got to write a case study. And you'll, because you don't want to bother your client, because God forbid we should bother them, you know, when we've done a great job for them. But we'll write it ourselves. We'll even write the testimonial for the client and then we'll bang it under their nose and say, Are you happy with that? They'll sign it off and and we'll, we'll have our case study. But of course, we haven't learned anything through that process. You know, in order to answer Simon's questions, you've got to talk to your clients. Because they're the ones that are going to give you all of those answers. I was talking to my business mentor recently, and we were talking about what makes good marketing. And you know, marketing is and sales is a process of disqualification. You know, obviously qualification is very important as well, but it is a process of disqualification. It's no, there's there's so much you could be talking about about your business, there's so many aspects, so many moving parts, the only way you're going to discern which bits of your business, your, your customer, and your market is going to be most interested in is to talk to the people that have bought it, because they're going to tell you why they bought, and they're going to tell you what the impact of buying it was. They're also going to tell you why they disqualified your competition. So, and These are all questions that you need to ask In order to to satisfy what Simon's saying, right? Now, he says something, you know, that's really interesting why people didn't buy. And that's coming back to this idea of disqualification, because it's not just working out what you should and shouldn't say, it's also working out who you should be selling to and who you shouldn't. Because a lot of the time, when you're talking about who didn't buy and why, you are basically telling people that you don't want to attract into your business not to come, and the people that you do. To come so that you're getting rid of time wasters and people you can't help, and you're attracting people you can do your best
0: work for. On average, salespeople spend 85 to 90% of their prospecting time chasing the wrong people. So if you understand who is not your prospect, then you can deprioritize those and take them out of your call lists. You can stop marketing to them. When you think about the amount of money. These statistics I got from Jerry Hill, who is the head of EMEA for Connect and Sell. Now, these guys do 40 million cold calls a year. So they do know their stuff and they're very data oriented. And they're saying that on average, it's 33 dial attempts to get through to one effective, unless you're going for senior executives in technology, in which case it's one in 46. And of those effectives, actually have two or more layers, each of which takes two minutes and 45 seconds on average to perform. So first of all, you've got this enormous expenditure of effort up front just to get an effective conversation. Then you have a very, very low conversion rate. One in three would be considered to be exemplary. And you're seeing one in 14, one in 20 of those conversations moving forward to a meeting. But then you have people who have and, and, and this is the average for sales globally is one in eight first meetings results in a second qualified meeting. So you've spent this inordinate amount of money getting leads into the top of the funnel through marketing, then through your prospecting. Um, and then you get in front of these people, and through lack of preparation, um, lack of story and lack of transfer of emotion. You fail to move them from first to second meeting. And with these enterprise sales, you might have five or 12 meetings along the way. And so the inordinate wastage that goes along the way. And if you tell great stories, you can concertina the sales cycle down to, you can compress it down to a fraction of that effort and FaceTime with the customer. Because you don't need to spend time convincing them. If they've convinced themselves. So, this is the real power of story. I interviewed Mike Adams, who wrote the book, Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. And he talks about the customer hero story, so the success story. So, let's spend a little bit of time on that. What makes for a fabulous customer hero story?
1: Great question. What makes for one? First of all, that we understand the entire journey any story is, is a transition right from where i was and i wasn't happy to where to where i want to be where where i'm uh, where i'm thriving so a great story starts with the context of the per, where the person found themselves right and starts with what was happening why it wasn't working and and the impact it was having and what would have happened had they left the situation as it was right so that we get a really good sense of what was happening the emotion it was creating and the potential negative impact and then the story is really about the the journey so this what was the process that that person was that person went through in order to gain the success that they did what's the what the challenges they had to confront what were the the knowledge that they had to gain But also, who was the person that helped them? Who was their Miyagi? Who was their Yoda that took them on that journey, that challenged them, that that put them in front of the adversity that they were not willing to confront, made them confront it. And once they confronted it, got them through it, and then into the place that they wanted to be, right? And then that's, it really is, uh, you and I think that's the challenge, I think, with a lot of sales, is that we do need to show people. The reasons that they are causing their own downfall, right? And we need to be able to show them in a way that is comfortable and and doesn't hurt them too much. I think you call it the RV mirror, don't you? Where you've got to, you've got to help people to understand what it is that, <laughs> they're doing that is causing their the, the problem, and then guide them through that process and and give them the, the confidence they need to, to break through to where they need to be. So
0: it's okay. it, I think one element that adds plausibility to those stories as well is that it can't be a smooth ride. Uh, There need to be the ups and the downs. They need to face peril together. You're the guide, they're the hero. And you have to uh, demonstrate through the stories that it's not always uh, smooth running. You're going to face obstacles. There are challenges that hit you from left field. Uh, You get beaten around the head and you you take them through that journey. That's what makes story compelling. If you go to a good film, there's you know, there's inevitably some form of peril for you know a drama or an adventure. And without that, the story just isn't plausible. I, I think building on that, you know, in terms of hooking people in, there are three types of story that Mike talks about: the personal story, the key staff story, and the company story and i think a lot of people are very weak at that personal story the company story is boring but the personal story tends to be very weak and it really needs to uh, connect you with the reason why you're doing what you're doing what your purpose is and with without that you're just so, one of many and the personal story will help you to differentiate and in a crowded, competitive, price-sensitive market filled with noise and distraction and 35,000 decisions of which you are just one, if you cannot stand out and be memorable, then you'll easily just be forgotten. How many salespeople have you had tried to sell to you and you cannot even remember who they were, their name, what their company was, what products or services, because they all just sounded bland and the same? Well, so I
1: get emails on a daily basis from people trying to sell service stuff we all do and typically the email is always the same hi I'm from such and such a company we do this and we think we'd be great for you right do you and what they fail to do every single time and I just think their emails would be a hundred percent better if they did this was to say if what what if you got an email like this that said hey Marcus I was having a look at you on LinkedIn and I noticed you do this and that you operate in this world, let me tell you a story about somebody like you that we recently helped. They were struggling with this and we helped them to achieve this and this was the impact. Can I send you something that would help you to get two steps further today than you are currently? And then maybe we can have a conversation right? So I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to tell you that I deal with people just like you. I've recently worked with somebody and I've taken them through a process that's got them an amazing result that you might like. And I'd like to send you something that's going to help you get a little bit further on than you are today. And then perhaps if you like all that stuff, we can can have a conversation. I mean, for me, it would just, it would transform the email, because I'd actually, I'd, I'd be interested in the story, I'd look it through, I'd look at what they send me, and then, I, you know, we we, we, we might be in a conversation, but it's just so much of this bland blar about what we do and how we do it, and it's just not interesting, because I, I don't see myself in the
0: email. I, I think story needs to do one of two things. It either needs to transport the listener into the world of the story. Mm-hmm. Or the story needs to enter the conversations and the world they occupy mm-hmm. um, for it to be successful. Absolutely. It needs to draw people in. And at the end of the day, human beings are creatures of emotion. They're creatures of story. For the last 250,000 years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling stories. I know this is a subject close to both our hearts, because... The side we were on were outstoried in both cases. You look at Brexit, you look at MAGA, they were masterful in terms of the story they told. And story can trump facts any day of the week when you're dealing with creatures of emotion. I don't want to get dragged into a political fight with anybody one way or the other, but you look at what Trump did in terms of controlling the narrative for the last five and a half, six years. You look at what the Brexiteers did in terms of controlling the narrative. And the opposition were arseholes trying to use reason and logic and evidence and facts to fight against the strongest emotions that people can muster. Fear, hatred, anger. And those two groups were masterful in how they tapped into that. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a moral case to tell stories that are uh, honest and true and fair. Um, but the reality is that uh, unless you understand story, when you're selling and you're up against a master storyteller as a competitor, you haven't got a chance. So no. you need to be able to take your story and package it beautifully so that you stand a fighting chance of winning in a crowded, competitive, price sensitive, noisy market.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, you talked about fairness. Life isn't fair. And unfortunately, you've got to use your the tools at your disposal if you want to win, right? And that's exactly what we can see with Brexit and MAGA. And, and what they did, because what, and we haven't talked about this in much detail yet, but we probably should. What a great story does, story is all about, is all about values. It's all about identity and it's all about meaning, right? It's what about it's about what do we what do we find precious, right? So what are we what do we value? What's our identity? So can we see ourselves in the story? Can we identify with it? And what's the meaning we take from it? Is it meaningful? Does it strike a chord with us? And I think that's what, when we're talking about Brexit and MAGA, what they did beautifully was they told a story that meant something to people that they could see themselves in. We were, as a country, I think people felt like they had lost a lot of what they valued. They, they couldn't see themselves in the, this kind of EU identity, I think, with Brexit in particular. I mean, there's lots of reasons for Brexit, but I think this is a key point. And because so they felt a loss of identity, they felt a loss of meaning, they felt at a loss. And then and what Brexit, what the Leave argument did is it gave them that identity back. It, this idea of sovereignty, this kind of vacuous, meaningless idea actually has great strength when, when told through the right kind of uh, uh, lens. Because what it does, is it says, we value you. We understand where you're coming from and who you are. We know that you're losing that control and that sense of self. And we're going to tell you a story that's going to give it back. So if you know we, we come out of this organization that's taken it away from you, we're going we're, we're to give you something. And I think what the Leave argument did brilliantly was that they were for something they gave somebody a brighter future they told you everything was going to be wonderful and what remained it is they didn't tell that story they didn't talk about the what, what we had achieved in the eu they didn't talk about where we workers rights kind of uh, you know what how our standard of living had improved you know what they did was they talked about why you need to be against leaving what you know what they they went down that that fear route of this is what you're going to lose but people weren't listening because it, as you say it was very logical and it didn't strike an emotional chord so they weren't didn't feel like they were losing much but they had all of this wonderful stuff to gain and trump did exactly the same thing so yeah certainly the tactics they used helped create division helped to get people angry and that's very useful because negative emotion you know is is very motivating but what they did do is they gave people a sense of something they could reclaim that they felt they'd lost and that's the power of story
0: very interesting so if we think about story as a means of conveying purpose and values can you give some good examples of where companies or leaders have been able to position their values in a way that was congruent with their history, because I think that's really important. You know, you, you saw a load of companies that had nothing to do with civil rights jumping on the bandwagon, and it came across as virtue signaling with Black Lives Matter, or companies that jumped on the bandwagon around uh, climate change and environmental change. You know, someone uh, like the CEO of Patagonia telling a story about climate change, you absolutely believe it, because since the 1970s, That's been, um, you know, his soapbox, and uh, that's been his stance. But someone turning up from a heavy engineering company that puts uh, arsenic into the water, then making that claim to be associated with it, is just incongruent. That
1: word is so important, and I was, I was exactly the word that I was going to use. And there's another word. There's a, a consistency, right? So. Any good story is congruent with the action of that personal business, right? So in order to tell an authentic story, there's a lot of pieces that need to come together and maintain the congruency of that story. So whatever you're saying, you've got to back up with your behavior and with what you're trying to, with your vision and what you're trying to achieve. There needs to be consistency as well. So you can't jump around from either story to story or value to value. So congruency and consistency are extremely important. And I think, you know, so when you think about, I mean, there's the obvious examples of and you, you talked earlier about company story being boring. Well, I think companies don't really have stories. People have stories. And, and it's the people within a business that, when brought together, create that company story, right? So if you're starting from a position of, let's tell the company story, then you're starting from complete the wrong position. You need to be starting from the position of, what is the, the story of the people within that business? and And of course, that can be quite a difficult thing for people to get their head around, because we don't. You know, certainly Brits, Europeans don't really like we don't like talking about ourselves. And so telling our own story is is difficult for us, but it's absolutely a necessity because people buy from people. So what's a good example of that? Well, there's the obvious, right? Steve Jobs at Apple, a failing company before he came back, right? He started the company off and then was kicked out. And then the company was going down, going down the shitter. And I was actually working at a PR company that had the Apple account when we were when we had the IMAX those huge basic TV screens, right? And the company didn't know where it was going or what it was doing, and and it was struggling against the PC market and and was about to essentially disappear. Boy, I wish I had bought shares in the company at that point. <laughs> I rue the day. But Jobs came along, and the reason why the company he turned the company around was because of the stories that he was able to tell and his own personal story you know he he made being a geek cool he essentially said you know you people who feel you're on the periphery on the outside i've got a very special club for you to join and the values of this club reflect your own this is about it's about ge- celebrating geekdom it's about creating products that are specifically for you. And and it wasn't just the storytelling. Everything from the design principles and methodology and ideology through to the way that the company operated backed that story up. These beautiful pieces of kit that were closed. You know, they weren't open. Nobody could get into this thing unless you were in the Apple Club. And a lot of people thought this was crazy at the time. Why would you create a closed system? He wasn't creating closed system. He was creating a place that was specifically for a very certain group of people that could be embraced by them. And and he was the figurehead. And and you know every time he walked out on stage, he walked out to rapturous applause.
0: Every time they launched a product, there were people queuing up down the street. Not- I I remember I, I had an office in uh, Covent Garden, and they released a new iPhone, and for two days people were camping outside. I mean, literally, there must have been three, 4,000 people in a queue waiting to get into a shop to buy a fucking phone. Yes. I mean, seriously. But that's the power of story and community. Ah. I think that the, uh, another element that most marketers are very poor at is that whole piece around community, because with community comes these collective shared stories, these collective values. And human beings are social primates. There's no point fighting it. And this is why I have such uh, an issue with all this big data. Uh, I was at a dinner uh, Christmas before last with Forrester. And uh, the lead analyst around uh, big data said that only 7% of companies are using it well. Mm -hmm. 7%. And you think about the amount of money that's being squandered on it. And they're collecting all this information uselessly, and you see all these marketing companies, uh, marketing uh, departments, measured on stuff that does not matter. What really matters when, when it comes to content, as far as I'm concerned, is the subsurface communication. Al Tepper talks about it as buzz. Of my seven clients at the moment, one of them was referred directly, and six of them has come have come through content because they've been reading and consuming my content for up to 16 years, and have never so much as given it a like. Never even so much as a like, let alone a comment or a share. And I was worried about all of those metrics. I don't care. As long as one person contacts me who's in my target market, that's the only thing I care about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the pro, first of all, the problem with data. Just going back to that very quickly. I mean, I, we're going to see a, we're going to see that turn around. People are going to rise up against big data, and we actually what we'll, we'll see is the rise of small data. Right? Yeah, I agree. And the idea that once you understand what it is that you're again, it's this disqualification. You got to understand what it is that you're actually looking for, so that you can take that big data and pull it apart and b- reduce it down to its 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 refined uh, uh, gold, right? I mean, I remember a, a chap that we both worked with, a guy called Mark who I I you know I spent I worked with him for five years and 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 just had a marvelous time because uh, you know just, he was a brilliant storyteller. But what he said, you know, he said most. Briefing documents that, and he was in uh, retail design, right? So he he designed uh, a lot of shop bits for the beauty industry, and he'd say that you know he'd get these briefs from clients, these huge tome (laughs) of information. And what his skill was was to take it and say, right, I know that there's just one or two pieces of information that are important in that briefing document. And I'm going to find it. And once I've got those two pieces, then I can respond, right? So, and 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 that's the thing with big data is you've got this huge block of 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 data, and and it's useless unless you know what you're looking for. And so that's a small data is going to become much more important. And so, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Everybody, we are social animals, but we're also animals that like we like to be liked and so that means that you know we kind of put a preference on likes and comments and shares on our, on our content but actually the really important metric is are you driving people to your business and have you worked out the right customer journey to do that right so and and it, it does the content journey work so you you've got all these people looking at your stuff engaging with it not necessarily leaving a comment or a like but over time slowly kind of coming to an awareness that yeah this is where they are and what they need to do and wow god marcus how have you read my mind and described my situation so perfectly and oh my god what are we going to do about it all right i'm going to have to call marcus i might never have engaged visibly with your stuff but my word has it engaged with me and yes i'm going to call you so you know that's that's uh that's the power of content yeah i wonder also if i may There's one other thing that we haven't discussed about the power of story and also the power of insight, right? So getting the information you need in order to tell that story. And that's this: that's the effect it has on the storyteller. And this is really important, right? You talk about sales cycles, you talk about salespeople going in and having meetings and essentially wasting their time because they screw it up. Well. Persuading somebody influencing them has everything to do with how you show up and the emotion that you that you give off as you when you're talking to them when you're having these meetings. so let's just think about this when you've talked to your clients and you understand exactly what it is that you've done for them, the problems you've helped them solve the results you've helped them to get and and the impact you've helped them achieve essentially the value that you've created for them and by uh, as extension, the value that you're you're able to create yourself because of who you are and what you've done and where you've been and all the stuff that you've experienced. Can you imagine taking that confidence into a meeting where you're sat there and you're no longer trying to sell because you don't need to sell because you you're convinced you know you can do a brilliant job so you know when people struggle when they try so hard to sell, they're actually trying to sell themselves. When you don't need to sell yourselves anymore, you have that confidence. You can sit down and have a really interesting conversation with that prospect.
0: And th- th- this then points to something as uh, some other really important factors. The more you hyper-niche, the more likely you are to be able to serve that particular group. And you can develop real strength in that space. And it- it's been a long time since I have felt the need to try and convince somebody. Because I, I've become competent at what I do. And I'm pretty, yeah, I've, I've been pretty good for a while. But what I'm looking to establish is can I help?
1: Mm-hmm. If I
0: can, am I the right person to help? Are they the right people for me to help? Because I, I don't want to fail and I don't want to fail them. I don't want to sell them something that is going to be uh, just part of the uh, solution unless I'm selling, co selling with partners where we, sol- where we can provide a much bigger solution and solve the whole problem. So one of the things that I've spent a lot of time, particularly in the last three months, now that I'm out of the training business, and I'm working with a number of software companies, and I've been collecting companies that operate in a similar but slightly different area. So that together, when we bundle these propositions uh, together, we're able to deliver a much stronger solution. So Gap in the Matrix, So, I'm eternally grateful for the introduction from you two, provides the ability to deep dive into a brand, into a proposition and get to the language, the story, the syntax, in order to create a compelling framework for you to engage with your customer. There's White Rabbit uh, and White Rabbit takes your data, and it runs the AI against your data and helps you to identify who your ideal customer is, who the good marginals are, and who you should never uh, engage with, because they're never going to engage with you. So now you've got a great story, and you've identified who it is that you should be selling to, and which of your salespeople should be selling to them. And then we've got all of that noise and all of that wasted effort. Then there's connect and sell. And connect and sell can help you cut through all of the um, the barriers so you don't have to make those wasted dials, get through the voicemail, deal with reception, deal with roadblocks. And you can have five to six calls per hour speaking to your exact customer that is most likely to engage with you and have the right salesperson speaking to them. Now, That way, you can cut out 90% plus of all the wasted effort, 90% plus of the wasted marketing spend, and you can just focus on engaging with people who you can help, who you are best placed to help, and then deliver breathtaking value, incontrovertible value, and create an easy first step for them to um, take you on. And in doing that, What you've now created is a sales superpower. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that you can do. You've got to think about where is our superpower? And do we have it on our own? Or can we enhance it by co-selling? And I'm fundamentally uh, convinced that success in the future will be largely determined by your ability to collaborate. Because in technology, in, in your world, PR is just one element of marketing. Now, if you understand that whole piece, and we build PR into the mix, because now what we do is we take the success and we turn those into stories that resonate and are targeting exactly the people that we should be aiming at. It draws those people in. And now you have an inbound pipeline. You add to that LinkedIn video because let's face it getting hold of people's direct telephone numbers is tough at the best of times but under covid in lockdown most of them are valueless anyway most people aren't responding to uh, call calls you know you were talking about 33 to 46 dials to get through virtually everyone will click on a 27 uh, second video on their linkedin profile now if you understand the choreography of what order that you take in terms of which message, which medium, and you send the right message, and you send stories of people just like us, then all of a sudden, sales becomes relatively simple. Then it's a matter of choosing who you work with. Now, I would much prefer to be in that position than being some poor, lowly, beaten up SDR, battering the phones, trying to make a quota. Now, that's a much more compelling story. 100%.
1: It's really interesting, isn't it? Something that I think has been a connective tissue throughout my career is helping companies to punch above their weight. And I think one of the reasons why I'm able to do this and why small companies need to stop thinking of themselves as small companies and and, and start thinking about themselves as as aligned to their audience and actually the value, value generators is because if you think about very large companies, they, they typically scoop up a lot of uh, the market just through pure brand power and ability to pay for presence, right? But the problem with very, very large companies is that they are very generalist. They typically aren't particularly tailored to, to, to specific markets. And so people are buying stuff that kind of works, but isn't necessarily completely suited to them as a business. And what you're talking about here is creating an operation that is specifically created and engineered for value to a very specific market. and When that market understands that you're the place to, I mean, people talk about how to become the the go to, what you've just described is the mechanics of how you do that. You create a machine that creates so much value for a very specific audience that why would they go anywhere else? to get that when they can get it from you. And you've done it, because what you've done is you've disqualified, first of all, all the stuff that's irrelevant. And you've aligned yourself to the people that you know you can help the most. And then you've created a machine that creates that value for them.
0: I think another element that you uh, can build into this is um, if you want to punch well above your weight, then identify who your protagonist is. So find an enemy and um, find uh, someone big, and then find the weakness in their strength. And that, again, is a huge superpower, because I have four big, hairy-ass, audacious goals, and I don't mind making them public. The first one is to take eight companies to a billion dollars over the next eight years. And I'm well on the way to doing that with four so far in, three, in the first three months of this new business. We're well on track. Second is to essentially take the legs out of Facebook and Google, because 98.81% of all the money spent on their advertising is wasted. It's just interrupted noise and irrelevant. And there is a better way, which I've just described. The third is to take the legs out of the vulture capitalist speculators and gamblers that destroy perfectly good businesses, because there is no need to go for that type of funding that effectively causes you to create a terrible business uh, with a terrible culture that burns through human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can create a very successful business without any of that. Mm -hmm. And then the next bit is turning sales into a force for good, because I genuinely believe our profession is a fantastic profession when done well. Unfortunately, most salespeople at best are zookeepers. They're just feeding the animals, they're order-takers, but there's a huge number that don't understand that our job is to serve, it's to help. It's not to make quota. Making quota is a byproduct of serving and helping. And I think that fourth one is the hardest of uh, those four objectives. Because honestly, what we have to do is eliminate a large number of dinosaurs in my generation who still f- uh, believe and tell people that sales is a numbers game right. it's not marketing isn't a numbers game either if it's done with precision with accuracy mm. then it's anything but and that's the story that i want to tell
1: i love that because it's a story that will really resonate because again it's all about values right and and what and an identity and i think you know the other thing you've got to watch out for, and this is for you as a company, I think, and 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 you know, I, it, it, and this comes out of success, and it's really interesting, isn't it, that a lot of these companies, Google, Facebook, maybe Amazon, I don't really know uh, what goes under the skin of Amazon, but they start off with the best intentions, but as they grow, and as they become successful, and then as they corporatize, that's when things start to go wrong, and I mean, you've seen it with Facebook, I and mean, it's just, uh, yeah with all the you know Zuckerberg we think you know started off with the best of intentions around creating community uh, helping people to share stuff tell their story all this kind of stuff and and it's and and he's got very messy but I think what 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 I would say is I love that what you're talking about cutting the legs off from these companies because I think that's where the opportunity is isn't it you've got to look at the big protagonists and you've got to look at where they're failing, and that's your, that's your opportunity. That's that's where you can enter. I mean, if you look at recently, again, they they're 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 going to have to watch how they go. But if you look at Monzo and Starling and Revolut, the reason why they were able to come into being. And generate so much interest I don't think that they're generating a huge amount of profit at the moment because they're still struggling to do that, but what they, they've managed to get so much interest is because of the, the crunch, the credit crunch and the banking crisis. These large corporations that for so long tried to tell this story of we're looking after you and we're here for you and suddenly the, the mask dropped off the curtain got pulled back and we saw the evil within. Well, that was when, you know, you saw this emergence of these, these new players. And I think we're going to have lots of these opportunities moving forward. And where these, you know, these large corporations, they're going to be, we're going to see them for what they are. And what's going to take over are, as you say, these kind of smaller businesses coming together with the right values, with the right stories that are going to really excite and, and engage and attract people to them. Because I, how, you know,
0: but I, I think there's something place. else as well, which small businesses and medium-sized businesses can really play to, which is by telling their story and by delivering stories that deliver insight, that teach that talk about their values, that elevate key staff within the organization, you can stand apart. One of the things that video has done, for example, is it's allowed it to humanize the face of a company in terms of uh, understanding who the people are within the company. Something that's been quite strange for me, because I'm actually something of an introvert, Uh, Though uh, people who know me will probably doubt that. But I don't care whether people particularly like me. I don't care whether I get the credit. I like getting the credit, but it's not the end of the world. Um, But what I do care about is doing a fantastic job. And what I love is where people come and tell me, as a result of my content, it's been transformatory. They've, they've been able to do things that they couldn't do before. writing my book, people coming and telling me that it's transformed the way that they've uh, developed their partner channels. And you know, I've got clients, historical clients, who are growing 50, 80 percent a quarter off the back of this, e- even more. And they're starting you know they're, they're motoring as a result of that. Now that to me, is a job well done. Because I I don't believe that um, the sale is ever complete until someone comes back to you and says, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Best decision we ever made was working with you. This is the impact. And these are the stories that you as a vendor, as a seller, should be uh, collecting. Because those are powerful. And they give you strength when you go to sell. Mm -hmm. You're not there to try and prove yourself. Now, if you're a junior salesperson, your company should have those stories. That's what marketing should be doing. They should be going out and speaking to customers. Mm -hmm. They should be collecting those stories. And your framework, the Sweet Spot framework, I think is just pure genius. Alex has developed this wonderful framework to be able to collect stories from customers. And it goes back into the past as to what it was like before why they eventually got round to choosing your company, what it was like, what results they've been able to generate, what impact it's had on them personally, because that's the stuff that people can relate to. They don't relate to adding Microsoft 365 or putting some servers in. Not even techies relate to that. That's just humdrum. You've got to relate to the other human being. And what's missing And this is why I love the fact that you've got people like Matthew Sweezy, Karen Mangia, talking about the importance of story and small data and uh, employee engagement. Uh, You've got people like Mark Schaefer and Stephen Denny. You've got Colin Shaw. You've got people like Martin Lucas, yourself. You know, all these people out there really focusing, Martin Lindstrom. Now, his book, Small Data, is a must read. You've got companies like Authentics, uh, led by Amy Brown, where they're listening to the raw, unfiltered conversations with customers. And that's where the future lies. It does not lie in big data. Big data has its place, but honestly, most of you are butchering it, and it's a waste of money. You would be better buying lottery tickets.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think there are. Too many businesses, too many brilliant businesses out there that are either struggling or underperforming. And it has nothing to do with skill or ambition. It's simply to do with their ability to connect with their market and influence their market. The problem is that they are underutilizing some of the most incredibly valuable assets in their business because either they're not aware they're there, or they don't think they're important. And you, you talk about your, the power of your content, and your content is, is extremely uh, influential and, and persuasive. And I, I heartily believe this. It's because of the challenging nature of your of your content. And what you do is you I mean, you obviously talk to your clients, and you gather their stories, and you help tell those stories. But what you do is you reach, and what good uh, business people do, is they reach back into their past and they draw on the lessons that they've learned through their, through their journey, through their career, and they tell those stories. And what they do is they help people come to, and we talked about this earlier, come to an awareness of what they're doing that isn't working. Uh, and, and typically, we are driven by wisdom, aren't we? But conventional wisdom. And there's a, you know, sometimes that conventional wisdom has had a time when it did work. But as the world moves on and as as everything evolves, conventional wisdom runs out of juice. It runs out of energy. And there comes a time where you've got to change what you're doing. Or it may never have worked in the first place. It just everybody thought it worked in the first place, but it was something else that was working. And what really good content does, really good storytelling does, is it helps people to confront the wisdom, the mindset, the behavior that isn't helpful, but it's not working, and helps them see that through good story, because we're showing them, we're, we're, we're delivering proof of that through the story that we're telling, and helping to turn them their mind to something that will work. And the people that buy from you, I'm pretty sure, have accepted that they need to change the way that they do things.
0: We've got to wrap up now, but let, uh, let me let the cat out of the bag. Virtually every piece of content I have ever written has been based on some form of idiocy either myself or one of my clients has perpetrated or inflicted on their customers, and all the good content is based on scar tissue. it's based on confronting your own stupidity. and learning that skill of vulnerability early has and it, you know it's taken a while you know the, probably the last nine years has been a painful and slow evolution. Uh, I I can't think of any decent piece of content that I've produced that has been anything other than packed with acts of idiocy, self-sabotage, blood, sweat, broken limbs along the way. And that's what people can relate to because actually, it's very human. And your vulnerability is one of the greatest strengths that you have. Admit your failures. Admit where you fucked up. Admit your mistakes. And tell that story. And being absolutely authentic every single time in saying, look, hold my hand up, act of idiocy, did this, this is how it hurt me, this is how it hurt my customer, learned the lesson. That's incredibly powerful.
1: That's the gold in every business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not your victories that you learn from, it's your mistakes. Revel in those, celebrate them, and don't keep making the same ones, because that's stupid. But failure is inevitable, and mistakes are inevitable. You don't punish them. You learn from them. So, Alex, how can people get hold of you? I'm on LinkedIn. Just
1: search for Alex Mosca. I don't think there's that many of us. But also, uh, I suggest people look at Find yourselves sweet spot, uh, where... They can find out more information about the sweet spotting process and hear stories of companies that have uh, achieved great things by uh, understanding how to tell better stories and aligning themselves to the right market. And your podcast is uh, called "Not the New Normal," where we and so on Podbean and anywhere that you get podcasts. And basically, we look at this fact that whereas there's there is a lot of change at the moment, the things that you're having to confront the business are not new. They've just been coming for a long time. So there's the real new normal. It's always just a process of change. And when you understand that change, you can respond to it.
0: Excellent. Alex Mosko, thank you. Thank you very much, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Now, if you're the owner of a, or CEO of a tech company, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth with highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year, then schedule some time for a quick chat. You can reach me at marcus at dot com or on LinkedIn. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then drop me an email or a direct message on LinkedIn and connect us. Thanks very much. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.